What's up, everybody? Welcome to Mixtapes. I'm your host, Eric Stanglin. And on today's show, we have a fantastic singer-songwriter who's also a multi-instrumentalist composer and arranger. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Welcome to the show, Mr. Eric Anderson. How are you doing today, sir? Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, doing great. Can't wait to do this. Right on, man. I'm glad you came on the show today. Hey, you know, one of the first questions I always like to ask, you know, for our listeners is, when did you first catch the music bug? Well, um... I, you know, I think growing up, music was always on in the house um, and a wide range of music. Some of it was classical music. Some of it was uh, new age music, uh, but, you know, pop and rock, you, you know, Elton John, the Beatles, that stuff was always on. Um, Norwegian folk singers. My parents are both Norwegian, as I think, you know. So, I mean, it was just always there. And particularly my mom is a huge music fan. So even before I started viola, which was my first instrument, my first introduction to music in any sort of formal way where I was, you know, taking lessons and playing an orchestra. I was already, I was, I mean, I was singing, I was just buzzing around the house, whistling things and singing things. And so, you know, formally speaking, I was 10 when I started on the viola. Okay. And I think that's when I really started to connect the dots, I guess that, oh, wow, this is something you can actually study. And, and there's more to it than just what you hear. And I think I also realized pretty quickly that, um, you know, I had some talent and a, a huge um, desire to actually explore it. So, I mean, that's when it started. And, you know, I'm sure as, as a musician, too, I mean, you kind of get the bug and then, oh, my goodness, like it, it just it grows in unimaginable ways. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it never goes away. It's one of those things where it's like I think I was like for me, I think I was like nine or ten. and I saw Van Halen on TV. I saw the mm-hmm. jump video and I was like, I got to do this. And that, then I, I, I bothered my mom and dad forever to get a guitar. So it, 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 it's wild how we have those moments too. And I, I just want to share here real quick. I had Lucas Arizu over yesterday and we were talking and we were, he was scrolling through and he, he, he had uh, one of your videos, which I saw, I think I commented on yesterday. And uh, actually I'm, I'm not sure if this is totally like even just off topic, but speaking of music, I know that it seems like, I mean, it's probably your whole life you've been super engaged, but I don't know. Is this true to say that there's almost like some resurgence with you? Like you've been practicing and playing like a maniac or is it, or you, is it just because you're posting stuff? Is that always the case? But you've been playing. I see all these videos and you've always been fantastic, but it seems like you're really even pushing your 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 skills and your your interests in music. Well, you know, for me, it's like I, I teach for a living. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the whole gigging thing, you know, kind of went south as we all Mm -hmm. know from the pandemic um and i just kind of found the love for it again to play outside of playing i know that Mm -hmm. sounds weird to most of our listeners but when you're like me and eric and you you do it for a living it's Mm -hmm. it's hard to do it when you're off hours if that makes sense totally you know because you're always doing it like i'm always teaching or playing so find the time for me yeah sounds really bizarre um is was important to me so yeah and then i mean like i got to go to lucas about a month and a half ago and he just blew my mind and i was like you know i really want to take some of the things i learned from him and yeah and you know apply it but yeah there's a there's a big plan for sure we'll talk about it later some more too because i know we have some things in common that we're going to talk about with with music and where we're where we're headed um you know it's really cool because i thought you would have been on piano first you know, because the piano feels like the natural instrument. Maybe I'm just making that assumption because, you know, you're a piano player. And that's how um, you met me in that context. Absolutely, right. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. cool that viola was the first instrument. Yeah. And we have another thing in common, too. My dad's Norwegian, and my mm. grandpa came mm. over on the boat. So I think we talked about that, yeah. We probably did. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So let the listeners know all the instruments that you do play. Okay. Well, um, so piano is definitely home base for me at this point. And, uh, you know, I've actually been playing a lot more guitar recently, not any sort of electric lead or anything like that, but acoustic guitar as a, as a device for writing basically. But, you know, I've gotten, gotten better at it. Cause when you sit with the thing in your hands for hours, you know, you figure some stuff out. Right. But so piano, guitar and viola, I mean, I have not played a lot of viola in the last few years, which is kind of a tragedy, but again, like there's only so much time in the day. Are you writing? Are you recording? Are you gigging? Are you trying to develop some sort of normal social life? You know, right, I mean, right. what, it, you know, there's just only so much time. I, viola is still such a gorgeous instrument and I love it, but haven't played it much recently. And it's, it's actually one of those things too, where it's kind of frustrating now because I lost so much skill on it that I feel, I just feel frustrated. Anyway, this is not a concise answer to your question, but so there's those three. Um, I mean, do I play anything else really? I mean, I can play, you know, I can make a sound on a bass guitar and I can play a cello like a fifth grader, you know, but um, <laughs> I think that's pretty much it as far as, uh, you know, I mean, I make my ways around the keyboards. Obviously it's the same um, musically speaking tonally as a, as a, as a, as an acoustic piano, but, Never really thought of myself as a keyboard player, sort of out of respect to those that are, because there's just a whole world of like your sounds and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then obviously vocals are probably as a vocalist at this point, that is where I find myself the most at home, even more so than a piano. Um, yeah, when I make... play piano, it's, it's like, it's, I love the instrument, but I'm not a piano player the way say Costia is. I'm a piano player that, um, you know, not to be self-deprecating at all. I mean, I, I play the piano w quite well and I, and I can make my way around the piano. And as an accompanist, I feel like I'm doing the job exactly the way I want to, but I'm not going to be usually the guy who's going to play some like insane solo. And I'm certainly not going to be found playing Rachmaninoff and anybody's going to go, Oh my gosh, that's the best piano player I've ever heard. As far as vocals, what's really interesting about that is that, and I think this is probably true with any instrument, but as a vocalist and a piano player, like when I really get in the zone as a vocalist, I feel like there's very little, if any separation to like just the essence of being and the essence of music. And I know that sounds super out there and hippy dippy, but it's like, that's the center of the bullseye for me. It's like, there's no, it, there's, it, there's no separation between anything. It's just, you are, you are becoming what it is you're doing. And I didn't always feel like that. That's something that's kind of come about um, over the years of doing the craft. You know, you, you, you kind of find your voice. And in this situation, you literally find your voice. But you can find your voice, obviously, as an instrumentalist, too. You know, these best, the best guitarists and saxophone players and piano players and whatever, you know, DJs, they find their voice at some point. But it starts out as, you know, a, a combination of the people they like and they say, Oh, you sound like Elton John. And then they're like, okay, well, that's cool. But then ultimately, and when you're a kid, you're like, Oh yeah, I sound like Elton John. But then at this point, I, I wouldn't really, I would appreciate the comparison, but if somebody said you sound exactly like Elton John, I'd be like, well, that's, that sucks. Cause I want to sound like me. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? The more, the more you play, the more you're out there. I think the more you basically become you. 
mm-hmm, you know, which, totally. which I which I think is is cool because I had the same comparisons when I was a kid. It'd be like, oh, you sound like Eddie Van Halen, or you sound like Randy Rose, or you sound like mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, 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 I, I want to sound like Eric Stangland. Right, right, exactly. But yeah. but that's that's something that takes time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's something that you develop. So I guess another question for you would be is, you know, you, me and you have similar routes to a degree because mm-hmm. we both <laughs> also did casino work and things like that. Yep. So yep. how much do you think? the casino circuit and playing as many shows as you did mm-hmm. help develop your voice mm-hmm. and develop maybe more your strength because I don't yeah. think a lot of people understand when you go see a concert, you might see somebody play for 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half or like a Springsteen or a McCartney, which is insane. They can do this still. They'll play for two and a half, three hours. Mm-hmm. But you're going half an hour, or not hour, like 45 minutes, hour break. 45 minute hour break, 45 minute hour break. It's like mm-hmm. trying to tell somebody, hey, work out, take you know, 15, 20 minutes off, then work out again, take 15, 20 minutes off, work out again. So kind of explain to me if you think that helped you as a singer and give the listeners an understanding of how difficult it actually is. Yeah. Well, it, I've been thinking about this exact question a lot lately, and I think it depends on what stage of the career and development somebody's at. Because initially, and for, you know, plenty of years, I think it was mostly very helpful. Because what it does is, first of all, when you're really getting your start, it forces you to learn a ton of material. And whether that's your own material or cover songs, uh, it kind of depends on the gig. But it doesn't really matter in the sense of like, you're just learning a lot of material. And that's broadening your skill set. And it's actually helping your brain learn how to learn and write music and, you know, just do the actual gig. And the other thing it does is it gives you an opportunity to play in front of people. And we all know that you can rehearse till you're blue in the face, but if you don't have experience playing in front of somebody, it's, it's, it's helpful, but it's, it only gets you so far. You actually need the laps in the, in a, in a situation where you're playing for people. And then also vocally, it was hugely helpful because you, you know, your, your ability to sing is a muscle the same way, you're going to go into the gym and do squats to increase leg strength and leg endurance. I mean, it's, it's literally the same. Uh, I'm done exactly the same, but it's a very same, very similar mechanism. And um, it really is incredibly beneficial to be like, ah, man, I need to be able to do this for four hours. Oh, and by the way, I need to do it for the next four days after this for four hours. Right. Yep. Yep. And um, now the downside, which is a very real downside and um, you know, answering this question is is sort of a tough thing because that, you know, there are plenty of people who have, you know, done entire careers and particularly in the past when live music was actually, I guess, more a thing, you know Um, but you know, in the seventies, eighties, nineties, even in a town like Reno or Vegas where every cabaret had a live band and they had pit orchestras and all this. Right. And, um, but there's also a component to it that I've been more aware of in the past years too, whereas if you do too much of that stuff in a way that's, you know, it's kind of like what Costia would tell me. And I thought it was a perfect example of, uh, uh, you know, here it would be, um, it's like the wallpaper, you know, if you're the wallpaper all the time, it can kind of be frustrating on your morale as an artist. And it's a tricky thing because I think the fact that we can make a living at all playing our instruments puts us in the top, you know, 10th of 1% of like privilege for the whole world. I mean, truthfully, the fact that we have a roof over our heads because we play an instrument 
even on those days where we're playing at a casino and it's super smoky and nobody gives, right, gives a right. crap what we're doing is still there's this moment where you got to keep it real and go like I could be taken out the trash right now you know yeah. like th- this could be a lot worse I could be homeless right so now to just contradict myself a little bit if you're trying to develop as an artist you have to be a little bit careful not to get trapped in that casino world because once you've developed your skills and your chops and your voice and your and your you know both actually physically your voice and also your voice as an artist it can also really kind of steal your soul if you're just constantly in bars and casinos in the periphery. Um, and so it's a double-edged sword, man. And that's why I said it depends on where you're at in your career. Cause I think earlier on it's very helpful to force you to develop your skill, but then you got to be a little careful. And I'm, I'm trying to be extremely careful moving forward about what I agree to do and what I, what I say no to. Um, and I think the way that I've been handling it is that, the better the artistic opportunity and the more enriching it is, the more likely I am to do it. If it's trending more in the direction of like um, private events or, you know, um, I say casino gig, you know, some casino gigs are great. So I'm not saying they all, they all, right, suck, right. some of them are very difficult yeah. emotionally. Yes. <laughs> but, yes. But the way I've been handling it is you just jack up your price for that stuff. And you realize you're not going to get a lot of it because you're going to price yourself out. And when you do get it, you're like, sweet. Yeah, I'll do this gig for $5,000 because I don't really want to do it. But I can fund a whole freaking EP by that. So let's Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you think that way. And we think a lot like that. I... Um, I did the uh, original music route for a long time, and mm-hmm. and you know we'd play some covers here and there, mm-hmm. and then I started in the casino scene, mm-hmm. and I was in it in the early two thousands where you were playing a lot in town if you mm-hmm. wanted to, and you could pick and choose where you wanted to play, and there was different like tiers of places to play per se, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the money was great, but I remember certain months, you know we were doing, and this is all live band stuff, not mm-hmm. acoustic, not you mm-hmm. know. I mean, I remember one month in March, we did 28 shows in 31 days. Yeah. And, and, and like, you know, we were a lot of times, you know, you'd play six nights in a row, you know, or seven nights in a row. I remember doing, I remember one time doing 13 shows in 14 days, Yeah, you know, and traveling to do it, not, you know, so you are right. It definitely can, it can, it it definitely can mess with your brain for sure. And I think, totally. I think the other thing too is I think sometimes it messes with your writing. Um, there's two things. There's how, a t- how, how, how so? So, for example, when you're playing, mm-hmm. like, you know, those type of c- cover gigs, whether they're casinos or bars or whatever, mm-hmm. you're playing the best songs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So then you're used to how the best songs work and how people are responding to these these number one hits. and hits almost mentally, particularly. But, yeah, but only almost, almost gets into your head going, is the stuff I write anywhere near as good as this? Right. You know what I mean? Like, like I am, do. Am I, what am I, is my, am, the stuff in my writing, is it relevant? You know, like it does it, you know, am, am I, <laughs> is it in my head thinking that I'm writing good stuff, but like, is it really, you know what I mean? Is everyone it's, just laughing at me. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't know. <laughs> no. You have no idea because, yeah. you know, I think over the course of time, you know, as you evolve as a musician, yeah. everything evolves too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So something where you could be in a place where you're, super relevant and whatever or yeah. not even relevant but you know like then it gets to the point where it's like where's your audience now you know what yeah. i mean like yeah. i'm not in the same place i was at, at 20 to 25 to 30 to 35 mm-hmm. and you see that with a lot of other acts it's like mm-hmm. could james taylor put out a record right now and be relevant 
you know what I mean? McCartney did, you know, but like at the same time, like, is it because he's Paul McCartney? Like, could you have a guy that's what? What's McCartney? Is he seventy? Was he seventy? Well, and he was probably, no, no, much closer to eighty. I think he okay. was born in nineteen. He might be eighty years old. I think he was born in nineteen forty. So if he forty two, he's okay, right so about eighty. Years so he's old. right about eighty. So could you imagine an eighty year old writing a record and it being relevant without having the Beatles or any or Wings or any of that stuff? Well, the the short answer is absolutely not. Not <laughs> right, right. Like, there's just in in that question, this topic. There's just so much that's so interesting to unpack there. But it's like, yeah, I mean, even going back to what you're saying about the casino or just the, just the gigging world where you're playing covers and stuff. There's it's interesting though too and I, I i think about that a lot now too like when i'm playing performances whether they're solo or with a band where it's like okay this is more an original music gig and this is more cover gig I, i'm actually trying to separate the two very very clearly both yeah. in the billing um promotion billing sense and also in the mental sense of like what it is we're actually doing here good i've even toyed around with like having completely different outfits just to be like okay this is like might be some of the same people or all of the same people but this is not the same thing smart it's interesting because you have this you you could be susceptible to this thought of like is my stuff even good but i think it's also important to remember that if you're actually playing a show of more or less top 40 or even if it's not top 40 pop but let's just say very popular music it could be punk rock it could be it could be rock whatever but it's very popular well-known like hits even those songs you might play 40 of those songs in a night but you're literally taking the hit from all of these different bands and even one of those bands themselves you go see metallica or whatever it's not like their whole show is that is that type of song many are not in fact right and so i think it's a little bit of a of a mind fuck actually because it's it's you know I mean look at look at mccartney for example beatles might not be the best example because even their sort of um even their like songs that weren't hits, like pretty much everybody amazing. Knows. Yeah, 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 right. But I, I still think there's a way. You know, I was hearing an, uh, an interview with Jason Isbell the other day, which was incredible. And he was, t- I mean, he's obviously written a bunch of hits, but like I would put him in a little bit of a different cat- category, say than, um, you know, um, uh, who's the guy? Super famous country music singer wasn't on iTunes forever. Like pretty much the most famous ever. Why can't I think? Of, I got friends and Garth Brooks. Oh. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, but but Garth Brooks, you look at the catalog, and there's there's going to be way more hits. Whereas um, you know, Jason Isbell is certainly some hits, but much more like singer songwriter. And so the goal or the essence of what they do isn't necessarily the same, and it's not necessarily better or worse. Right. I'm just trying to like, or even, you know, one of my favorite artists, Ben Folds, like, you know, they had that quasi radio hit, which was almost like a total fluke. It was the song brick, which was a, a gorgeous song. It was yeah. a song about a teenager having an abortion. And it was like in the midst of, of like, you know, like, you know, Nirvana and, and red hot chili peppers and stuff dominating the airwaves. And here was this out of tune, upright piano and an upright bass and a, and a trap kit about a, an abortion and it was a hit, which is actually crazy. It makes you wonder if that could even happen in today's world. But my point is that what makes Ben Fold special is not the fact that he writes perfectly crafted songs the way that, you know, Sarah Bareilles would, that's a huge radio hit with a hook, which is also awesome. And as you know, like, I'm all about the hook and I love strong melodies, but I'm also all, all about the deep cuts too. And yeah. so I guess this is a long-winded way of saying that 
I can see how you can you could think that way when you're playing a bunch of hit songs in a cover band because I felt that way too, but I don't necessarily think it's the right lens through which to view it because because of all the reasons I just mentioned right there, you know. And no, the yeah. great reasons yeah. too, and I think the important thing I think we'll both touch on here in a second is it's because you believe in yourself and your music, mm-hmm. and I think that's what pushes you through that, mm-hmm. you know, where mm-hmm. where. I think in my life, the big difference, especially in the last, you know, last year with mm-hmm. everything that happened to me was I wanted to make sure everything I was doing was important to me. Dude. I, I wanted to make sure I could say no. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When I didn't want to be involved with something and not feel like I was pressured to do it. I mm-hmm. wanted to make sure that I left things for my kids and left things yeah. for, uh, you know, students and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, when I wrote my last record, that was an important record for me to write because it was getting through something that was huge in my life. And now I feel massive. (laughs) Yeah, really, really massive, actually. And uh, now I feel like I'm in a place where I can create more and learn more and Mm -hmm. like, you know, doing podcasts and other things like that. Mm -hmm. I just I just want to be creative on my own terms, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. That's yeah, it makes sense. And it's uh, it's an amazing realization that um. I think probably, hopefully we all can come to one way or another, but obviously the events of last year for you kind of like, it wasn't just somebody patiently knocking at the door, asking you to have this realization. It was a damn, it was the, it was the fire department coming and knocking down the door with a freaking ax and sledgehammer, like basically like almost mandating this realization on you. And it obviously took you to the point where you, you know, it almost took your life, but the fact that you were able to glean that from the experience is like an incredible gift yeah i and i appreciate that man it's definitely it's definitely been a road for sure and and i think for me the biggest thing is i learned how to practice gratitude more Mm. and i also learned where there was people i thought would be there weren't and Ah. people i was really surprised that were there that I oh, wasn't expecting. Yeah, like I mean, that's gold. <laughs> we we there's a there's a person I won't mention his name, but uh, he's a, he's a friend, and I've known him mm-hmm. forever. And we don't like hang out, hang out, or whatever. But we'll mm-hmm. like text here and there. Mm-hmm. And that guy, he's another local musician in town, mm-hmm. um, and we have ties together, me and you, with mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. He texted me all the time, mm-hmm. like he would text me every couple of days. Hey man, I'm just checking in. How you feeling? Hey wow. man, like you That's know, amazing. check out this video. I don't. I'm not being preachy, but check this video out on on clean eating. You know, hey, yeah. how how's your mental health today? Like, and just reached out and and you know, it was really important. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there was other people that literally would send me a text that I've known for twenty something years, and that was it. Yeah, like never checked up, oh, never like, hey, man. how you feeling? And you know, there's other people like uh, you know, other bandmates that were. Uh, former bandmates and you know that were like hey come on over you know let's you know let's watch a basketball game together like Mm -hmm. getting me out of the house because the hard Mm -hmm. thing is when i went through everything i went through it was during the pandemic too oh man it's like a (laughs) double whammy so it's not even like i mean you know for the listeners that don't know i ended up having a a bunch of seizures and Mm -hmm. was put on a ventilator and uh, i basically stopped breathing and and basically you know was asked you know who my next of kin was it was pretty close like my kidneys failed get your get your affairs in order it was pretty insane so i i I bounced back from it took a long time but um that's what kind of happened so it was it was and that was during the pandemic i mean that was july of last year not that we're ever going to be out of this pandemic it seems like but it's you know what i mean like we'll we'll have to find a way 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's a conversation in and of itself, but I, I want to throw something in here that I've actually been meaning to text you. Sure. Um, and uh, so it won't be irrelevant to the podcast, but speaking of like clean eating and, and um, um, fitness and brain health and all these things, which I know have, have become quite a passion for you. Um, there's a book that I have that I've been meaning to um, offer to you if you're interested that yeah, had man. a profound impact on me, which is called The Primal Blueprint. It's by a guy named Mark Sisson and his whole life's work is like basically modeling um, modern behavior, both physical, mental, whatever, like a, a full, fully in, all-encompassing um, framework blueprint for life based on what we did back in the, in the primal primal times, you know, um, uh, many, many hundreds of thousands of years ago before we had all this modern phenomenon. It's just really interesting. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is stuff you're already hip to, but like, yeah, like if it comes out of a package and you don't know what the ingredients are, like, I'm not saying never eat it, but like that should not be part of your life. Like that's right. bad. Like right, exactly. sunlight and air are helpful. Like yep. lifting heavy things are helpful. Like getting oxygen going on walks. And even it's not, you know, you know, whether it's, I mean, obviously advantages to running and various other things too, but sometimes people I think gloss over the, the amazing effects mentally and physically of just going on a walk, which is oh. another thing with this freaking smoke that's killing me. I usually walk, you know, 20 to 40 minutes every morning, sort of as a very mild workout, but not even because I'm necessarily working out, working out because it just gets my brain feeling good. That clears you know? your head, makes you yeah. makes you think of things you wouldn't have thought totally. of. Oh, you, totally, man. It gets your brain and brain derived uh -huh. nootropic factor actually goes up and you're in this. And a lot of times I'll have these, um, I don't know if it's necessarily like epiphanies, but like great ideas and connecting certain dots or like projects I want to pursue. And Anyway, I got to get you that book if you're interested. No, absolutely interested, yeah. man. I'll tell you one thing for all of our listeners. One of the things that I love doing, I just got a bike like mm. six months ago from an old mm. student. He just gave it to me. I was like cool. super stoked. And cool. uh, so I started riding a lot. And the thing that you don't understand when you ride a bike or when you walk is you see things differently than driving in a car. There's a lot more perspective. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, yeah. it's very eye-opening. So not only are you exercise is great you know for a ton of reasons obviously endorphins everything but yeah. it's also really good to just see the world around you from a different point of view totally man you know totally. what i mean so yeah. speaking of that I, I wanted to let the listeners know you yeah. didn't end yeah. up in reno for music you mm -hmm. ended up here for skiing right is that correct i did i did it's so weird <laughs> right so think about Life it right it's beautifully strange isn't it were you gigging at the time like before you moved here or no I had started doing like the occasional um, gig and, you know, I was trying to hit all the open mics available. Um, okay. it, it's a really beautiful time in any musician artist development where you're just so freaking hungry for that. Um, actually interesting. I just, I just met somebody who's new to town is about the age that I was when I got here. It was kind of in that same boat and it just, it just reminded me of myself in so many ways of uh i mean clearly you can tell that i'm not lacking any pa passion at this point in my life either but it's different it's more like you know it's a more refined mature passion when you're yeah. 21 years old it's just like i just want to play a gig you know you see? i mean it's just it, it but anyway um yeah i was playing a little bit i wasn't playing like 
maybe every now and again, I'd have a, a gig where somebody would give me 50 bucks and I was, I, you know, just unbelievably stoked that I could right. get dinner and $50 yep, to play yep. songs. I'm like, I do this for free. <laughs> yeah, right. And, um, but I wasn't doing it in any sort of professional sense. And yeah, I came out to ski race for, for UNR, um, really on a whim, my program in Colorado got cut in the middle of the summer, the ski program, uh, at Western state, um, in Gunnison, Colorado. And, um, I basically had four days to make a decision on where I wanted to go to college if I wanted to continue ski racing. And as you probably know, um, that was another, um, and certainly at, at one point in my life, kind of the main focus of my life. Well, I mean, music was always right there too, but the beautiful thing about music is I never actually thought about it as a career path. Right. I actually thought I was going to be an Olympic skier until I was about 20 years old, which sounds sort of delusional and statistically it is absolutely delusional, but that's where my head was at. And, and it's, it wasn't, it wasn't a crazy idea. I mean, I was actually training at that level and competing in TAA and us nationals and all this stuff, <clears throat> but I came out here four day decision. It was either U UNR or UNH, which would have been Durham, New Hampshire, who knows how, well, very clearly my life would have been different in unimaginable ways. Right. Um, right my, my Midwest accent would have only hardened instead of maybe softened a bit, hopefully. And, um, my coach got a job at UNR. And so that kind of made it easier to kind of get in last minute, given the circumstances. And, um, yeah, I came out here and I, I more or less went to UNR for, I mean, I actually attended it for a semester. I was enrolled the second semester. I paid for the second semester, but I <clears throat> didn't go much. And, um, and, uh, and then what happened is I, I met the, you know, a lot of my friends here in musical community members. And at that point I was already working on this album with Costia, this, okay. this album that, that, that you're on plane rides and ocean tides. And when we first met, and so I was definitely already thinking like, Oh, I'm very serious about doing this, but I, you know, I'm glad you even asked this because I, I have not fully even processed where my head is. At. I don't even really know 2008, 2009, um, felt like a blur in a lot of ways. It was, <clears throat> everything was new. Everything was fresh. Everything was exciting. Um, frankly, as happens to a lot of people in college of that age, there was a ton of partying. There was a ton of booze. There's a lot of fuzzy memories, um, a lot of wonderful memories and a lot of like kind of coming into your own. Um, but I think I was gigging cause I was trying First of all, I was gigging because I was like loving gigging, but I also did not have a, a, I didn't have a solid financial situation at all. So being able to make some money playing gigs was, was helping me pay for the expenses I needed to actually get through college and actually to be alive. And it's interesting. We were talking before, you know, you hit record here about, you know, even just homelessness, which uh, to be totally clear, I've never been in a situation where that was a reality I would have had to contend with, which is um, obviously a, a blessing. But um, most of that was because I always knew I had such a solid family and friend group. But I've definitely been in the situation where it's like, I do not know how I'm going to pay for my rent. I really don't even know how I'm going to pay for dinner tomorrow. I have enough for today. Right. You know, but again, it's not it's not like I actually had any real fear of starving because I had enough friends and stuff, but it was a very formative situation to be in because a lot of times, you know, people um, that haven't experienced anything like that ever, even in their whole life, they, they, I, I think it's 
I think it's helpful to give you some perspective on reality because it's very easy to always point to other people that are struggling in whatever it is, whether financially or in some way in their life that you think they shouldn't, whether they're overweight or they're, they're an alcoholic or whatever it is that they have not been able to overcome that you have. It's so easy for any of us to say, why don't they just get their shit together? You know, and as you age a little bit, you realize that life is actually quite complex. And I've noticed in my own experience, there are certain, there are certain situations where I am pretty capable, reliably of like dialing in one part of my life that one of my best friends can't seem to figure out, even though we know all of the same details. And yet there are things that they have very well dialed that I can't seem to figure out. And it drives me absolutely nuts. And I guess it just, it, it, um, if anything, it gives you a, 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 a more compassionate disposition to just the rest of the world. It's like, man, we're all, we're all dealing with something that, um, you know, you, nobody necessarily knows. We don't share that same, same, same consciousness. That was a massive tangent. I don't even know. No, dude, this is why I love doing these podcasts, man, because it's, it's the biggest thing that I take from these podcasts is having a great conversation with somebody, an artist, you know, I call the show music, uh, you know, mixtapes because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different type of artists I have on here. Um, But the thing that's important to me is, is at the end of the conversation, you know, if somebody gets through the whole entire conversation, I hope that they seek out your music and I Mm -hmm. hope that they get more, engrossed into your music because i feel like they know you a little bit better Mm -hmm. so then the music becomes more personal to them does that make sense you know and that 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 was that was one of my big things i wanted to do with the podcast and you bring up great points because we don't understand you know i I know a certain person in my life that just is mr fix-it guy Mm -hmm. but it's like no man like if you don't understand what someone's going through and a lot of times you don't because they won't show it right Mm -hmm. it's it's impossible to understand how they can figure out something because sometimes you can figure out something and it's very black and white for you, but mm-hmm. for somebody else, it might be absolutely impossible. You don't know yeah. if somebody suffers from major depression and just getting mm-hmm. out of their room and out the door is something that's almost impossible to do. Right. But then you want to tell them, Oh, just lose weight. You know, you can just mm-hmm. do this or do that. It's not, there's, there's a lot of steps sometimes for people and you're right. Totally. The older you, the older you get. And I think here's the other thing too. It might not be about as, as old because as we know, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on nowadays. But, um, I think the more you allow yourself to be wrong, the more mm-hmm. you allow yourself to listen, mm-hmm. the more you allow yourself to like enjoy a debate and not have to be right. You totally, know? man. Do you know what I mean? That's when yeah, you absolutely. grow as a person, you evolve more. And I think that's when you see other sides. And then when you start to see those sides, you start to understand more why we have problems that we do have and, and how, you know, we can fix them or try to fix mm-hmm. them as best as we can mm-hmm. be more empathetic for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that solo record, mm-hmm. so you had, when you were doing little gigs here and before you moved to Reno, mm-hmm. you didn't have anything out. So then you put out your no. record. Cause I think when I saw you, the first time I ever saw you, and I don't know if you remember this, cause I don't think I talked to you that night. I saw you perform at Maytown. <clears throat> mm. You were doing yeah. like an open, like they were Todd, Todd South, Todd you know, South. the godfather of open mic nights in yeah, town. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he was putting on open mic nights in Maytan and you performed. And I remember just yeah. my jaw being on the ground going, holy God. And no. I had no idea how old you were. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, no idea. I think you were 22. Is that about right? It, well, it would have been 21 or 22. No older yeah. than that. Yeah. Yeah. And just going, God, this dude, is, I mean, wow. You know, because most yeah, time when you go to open mic night, 
you see people like finding their way. And that's what open totally. mic nights are for. But I also think open mm -hmm. mic nights are for people that are established to try new material out too. I think that's Absolutely. important for people to understand, you know, like kind of a low stakes, low stakes opportunity. To Absolutely. Just play and what a good, you want a good way audience. to see other people too, like Spike <laughs> McGuire, a good friend mm -hmm. of both of ours. Totally. You know, he does the open spike nights and stuff like that. Yeah. And he's given, it's almost like he's taking the torch from Todd South in a way. And he's given mm -hmm. so many that's people. That's true actually. Yeah. Right? You know, so many people yeah. opportunities in town, you know. But I remember seeing you play and just going, wow. Because, like I said, a lot of people open mic nights, you see them and you see the bumps and the bruises, and you're like, oh, that's cool. Sometimes you can see the talent. But with you, I was like, no, yeah, that dude's going somewhere. Like, I just oh, knew. Thank you. And I, thank told, you. I told Todd, I'm like, I would love to, you know, play on that guy's record or do whatever mm -hmm. if, you know. Mm -hmm. And then Tom Gordon, yeah. another mutual friend of ours. Connecting the dots, yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you do that record, you know, obviously I was in your band for a short period of time mm -hmm. and we and mm -hmm. and I, you know, got to play your CD mm -hmm. show live which was mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. Um then and the Todd running. Yeah, oh my god. <laughs> oh my god, do you remember that? <laughs> Dude, there's some great stories we can share, but maybe we'll just keep them to ourselves, but um yeah, that was that was amazing. Um <laughs> amazing. That's exactly that's exactly the right word. You yeah. can't even you know what I mean. Um but the the thing I wanted to ask you was so you're 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 gaining momentum with your solo mm -hmm. career, mm -hmm. and then you end up joining the novelist. And the reason why mm -hmm. I say joining the novelist is because Joel basically had the novelist in different mm -hmm. you know incarnations for years, yeah, yeah. right? You know, so you end up joining that band. It's almost <laughs> an acoustic band when you're in it, right? And then it morphs into a full on electric band. I want to talk a little bit about why you made that shift to to go to the novelists mm -hmm. and the shifts that happened within the band, you know what I mean? Like the, why you decided to go and the way you guys did um, just give the listeners a, a, a kind of like a synopsis of the band, because I think there's a lot of material on Spotify still. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and it's really worth listening to it. There's a lot of amazing stuff. So just give us just a small history of yeah. it. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I mean, so Joel Ackerson still one of my very best friends, um, uh, yeah, that was his project that he was kind of, it was his concept that he was, he was working on um, for, you know, a couple of years, even before I got involved. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we had become really good friends around 2009, 2010. And he actually played some acoustic guitar on the, on the plane rides and ocean tides. And, um, you know, it was, it was an interesting space for me because he was a, a dear friend immediately and a musical um, collaborator and almost sort of a mentor too, because Joel has uh nine years on me, which at this point doesn't feel as, as significant, but back then it was like a big deal. Like he had had, you know, a lot of professional experience and touring experience and I was totally new to it all. So, um, yeah, I just, um, you know, what started with that project is it really was a touring co-op. I mean, it had a lot of different, had several different members. I mean, the first version of the novelist that I actually participated in with Joel was actually, Joel, um, Zach Turan, who was in every version that I've been in, myself, and actually Tim Snyder for, I don't know, it was four or five months, where we were going around as it basically calling it a touring co-op under the name of the novelist. And we would basically, like a songwriters in the round thing, Joel would play, I'd play, Tim would play, and Zach was the basis for all. And we'd all have our, uh, you know, background vocals learned. And it was kind of a cool thing, but it definitely admittedly felt a little disjuncted because um, Joel's, I mean, there's enough overlap in the Venn diagram, but Joel's style um, was quite different from Tim's. 
And mine was quite different from both of them, but kind of in a different way. And but it, it certainly worked, um, and it was a cool chapter, pun intended. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't really a band; it was a co-op of singers. And then, you know, Tim kind of um, was was doing more of his own own stuff. And then uh, I don't even remember exactly how Megan Slankard got came to the picture, but I think it was because Joel was just such a fan of hers. And you know, Megan Slankard, amazing songwriter she's got a band uh, megan slankard in the in the wreckage um so any of the listeners absolutely check out the stuff that she's done it's <clears throat> absolutely incredible um one of my favorite female voices on the planet uh, is megan so and then so and then when megan joined the band it was still initially sort of a co-op and we did some touring i mean a lot of touring in fact went all the way to the east coast and um in a white little white minivan um well, tell the listeners too how cool it was because the thing I loved about this concept was, is you and and nothing against drummers, but mm. you didn't have a drummers and you weren't electric, mm. so basically mm. to tour was mm. really easy for you guys. If that well, makes it was sense. not. I mean, not well, like was, touring's hard, but but yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're compact. It was Does easier. Sense? It was easier. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we could fit in a minivan at all was uh, was a function of not having drums. Now we did have an upright bass, and I remember being so packed into that freaking van that like. You'd be in the back seat and you want to take a nap, and you'd be like, "Okay, uh, there's the upright bass. Okay, <laughs> that's great. That's really convenient. I'll just lean, lean my head over. I have at least, least, and the window's three inches that way, so I have you know enough space to move my head." You learn so, how to sleep on the road, don't you? Oh man, you do. And I mean, honestly, those were I actually give Joel more credit than than I probably ever have um, uh, acknowledged in the fact that like when he was even trying to build that project at that point he was probably my age now right dealing with people that were you know anywhere from a few years younger to quite a bit younger and um it, there's you have a way of tolerating really really tricky situations both with lodging and sleep and all that when you're when you're in your early 20s and then you kind of get into your mid 20s and it's like oh, okay and then you get into your 30s and it's like no 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 like I need to have a, a bed, like right, this is right. not, not going to work. And it's not, it has nothing to do with the lack of love or passion or drive. Um, it may for some people, but for me, it's just more of like, at some point you have to mind your health and you have to do things properly. And if you don't, it's not going to work anyway. Right. Anyway, I, I was giving Joel props for that because he was already in the stage that I'm in now and was doing this uh, in a way that was um, very... It wasn't that comfortable. Let's put it that way. It was a sure. lot of sleeping on couches. It was a lot of sharing beds. It was a lot of no privacy. Um, um, anyway, uh, it was also extremely formative and amazing. And we had some great shows. And it was just definitely a, there was no doubt. I mean, I think like probably the pinnacle of like what the novelists as that acoustic group did was probably sometime in 2012 or early 2013 where um, it was really pretty incredible how tight four voices were. And speaking of the lack of drums, I mean, obviously you can have these beautiful bands like the Eagles where they're rock bands and they have these beautiful harmonies, but there's a way to, I think, make it even sharper when you have no drums because monitoring is always easier. Stage volume is always lower and you can sing almost like it's chamber music. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's, it, you know, it's like kind of like a la, you know, Nickel Creek or, or something like that. I and mean, even kind of like, what we did stylistically was never bluegrass, but it, the, the instrumentation sometimes was sort of like that. So you could, and it was a, it was a gorgeous thing. I mean, we would spend so much time <clears throat> honing vocals, you know, just around a guitar in a, in a room like this for rehearsal, 
you know, where you'd literally be concerned about matching the vowels and the consonants and breathing in the same spot. And the crescendo is, and I say chamber music because growing up playing viola, I would play in string quartets. And it reminded me of that. It's just like, you're just, you're, you're literally breathing together. And obviously an acoustic setting like that, you know, we didn't have in-ear monitors. There was no click track. Everything was all about just becoming one unit. And, uh, Anyway, well, it was a beautiful you're not experience. hiding either, right? You know what I mean? That's the other thing too. There's exactly. nothing to hide behind. Exactly. There's nothing to hide behind. You either know what you're doing or you don't, you yeah. know? Um, you know, you can't like just glare at somebody else and be like, what the, what the fuck was that? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, no, no. So, um, <laughs> yeah, man. So, uh, so, so that was uh, an amazing ride. And then really um, in 2013, you know, we it, it, just like any project, there was there was tension, and there was definitely some tension on my end because you're saying like I started out with this with this with this my own project, which you were part of, and and it was more of a um, it still had that component to it, but it was more of a rock band, and frankly, it was more of a there was more variance in the music the way that it was produced because like on plane rides, you know, there are songs that are me and a string quartet. Um, and then there are songs that are like freaking 50 tracks of overdubbed guitars and orchestra and horns and background vocals. And that was always initially appealing to me because I didn't want to be confined by what the band was. I wanted to just write and record whatever I wanted to do. Right. And so there was a point where I kind of said to Joel, I'm like, well, well, this is cool. And I like this, but I'm writing these songs that I hear drums on. And like, frankly, I'm going to do them with drums anyway, which is why I did that EP. And, you know, you played on, on some of the EP as well, yeah. but um, it wasn't, I wasn't necessarily trying to be a dick about it. I was just saying, I need to be true to my conscience here. And like, this is a cool thing, but this is not actually satisfying me all in an all encompassing way. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was receptive to that ultimately, because that's when we ended up doing that novelist book club, which was a little bit more stylistically what I was always hoping for anyway, which was some of the songs were still totally acoustic. You know, I did the one piece with Megan Slankard, which is still probably one of my favorite songs that I've composed co-written um which is i'm playing grand piano megan and i are singing the duet and we have a, a string quartet that's overdubbed so as to sound like an orchestra and um and then we also had just rock band songs and then right. we had acoustic songs and that was really more of what i was going for and i know it can be tricky and not everybody agrees with it because one approach is like here's the band this is the band you make a record and it's four people four instruments and however many vocals and there's no overdubs and there's that and that's one way to do it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's one choice. And then another choice is like the, the, you know, the, the later years of the Beatles where, um, you know, there there's the long and winding road and there's these epic, epic productions. Well, they're not touring then either. So it's exactly. like they can, exactly. they know they don't have to recreate it live. Exactly. And frankly, by the time Paul McCartney would have been touring in any major sort of way, post Beatles, he would have had a bottomless budget and could do that anyway. You want an orchestra? No problem. Here we go. You know, exactly. exactly. So, so, so anyway, that's how it ended up morphing to drums. That was really, um, or at least drums being an option was, it was, it was really my uh, insistence that that be incorporated um, because I, I wasn't willing to sacrifice that. Um, and then, you know, and then, uh, you know, the, the three of us and Megan decided to, to split um, right at the end of 2013 again, not, it's not so much an artistic thing. I mean, some of my fondest musical memories ever are singing with Megan. I mean, we, our voices 
I mean, all four of our voices became very tight and certainly Joel and I singing all these years. I mean, there's a, there's a tightness there. That's almost ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's, it's autopilot. I mean, I don't mean autopilot in a sense that we're not actually conscious of it, but it's, it's so locked without even thinking at this yeah, point. Exactly. But I had, I had so much fun singing with Megan, obviously a male female duet is a very different dynamic than a, than a male male duet. And we were so dialed there too. I mean, I remember working with some of the guys I'm working with now, you know, Chris Sexton, um, and obviously Zach still sung with a million times, but like working up harmonies with, with Chris and Zach and talking to Chris about some of the stuff and, and how, you, you know, you, you just, again, you, when you really hit, hit, when you hit this properly, it's all about blending the voices and making things really um, work almost like you can't, uh, you know, you can't tell who's lead singing. It's that right. when it's done properly, it's that good. And it's, and it's also this, total endorphin rush i mean it's like oh my god yeah that is that's what we're trying to do here and when you do it right the audience catches it too and then they feel it and then you feel it and that's that's the beauty of live performance absolutely but as i was saying about megan there are actually certain songs where i was singing a direct harmony with her um often when there were only two voices where i was actually singing the wrong lyric for years and oh, wow. the reason why i think it's interesting is because Nobody could tell, not even her, because the way that I was pronouncing the word, I was trying to match her pronunciation perfectly. And she said some of these words in kind of a, what I thought was kind of a weird way, because I thought she was saying something else, but I only bring it up to say that it's, it, it didn't actually matter. And because what I was trying to do was not get the word right, I was trying to sing exactly the way she sung. To lock and in. Just, and support and blend, support and blend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's like uh, Seven Bridges Road by the Eagles. Yeah, it's stuff like that. Yeah, or, I mean, or like exactly. um, what is it? Uh, oh God, what's the Queen one where they start? Oh, off? you mean Rhapsody? But no, I mean, no, the one Freddy, where they, but yeah, the one they start off. Um, they start off acapella. Um, is it Fat Bottom Girls? Uh, I, I think Fat, Fat Bottom Girls. I can't, I can't remember the the the, the start oh, of this. Oh, but... you gonna take? Oh me yeah, totally. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like when you know, and that's the power of I think also too, when you get into that next level of pro, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Where you absolutely can, you can do that. Where it's like you got three guys or girls or four guys mm -hmm. or girls singing, whatever it is. Yeah, and mm -hmm. you're just like, oh my god, like everything. Mm -hmm. You realize how great and talented a lot of bands are that can do those things. Like you look mm -hmm. at you look at Queen. You know, um, another one bites the dust. John Deacon wrote the whole thing and played on almost all of it. Mm, and I did not even know that until later. Oh, yeah. And I always well, wondered too, because it, it felt weird to me, the guitar line. I was like, that's just a weird guitar line. And then I realized, well, okay, I know why it's weird now because John Deacon, the bass player, played it. You know what right. I mean? There's certain yeah. feels, right? You know, like. Yeah, it, absolutely. You wouldn't necessarily gravitate towards that if you grew up playing the instrument natively. You, or, or just make like. It makes it cool. Or singers, like singers that don't play guitar much, you right. can always tell in their strumming patterns that it's the singer playing the guitar, as weird as that yeah. sounds. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you probably yeah. know that now because you're yeah. you're learning yeah. guitar. I mean, you've always yeah. played guitar to a degree, right. but like yeah. you're getting more into it. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. So so you do the novelist thing, very successful. Um, I think you guys even got to play with Train, right? We did. We went on the. Uh, uh, we were an artist on the cruise that Train actually charters, which is basically a music festival on on the water, which is amazing. That Matt Nathanson and Glenn Phillips and the rest of development and uh, wow. Natasha uh, Bedingfield. Bedingfield, yeah. The list goes on. Yeah, that was amazing. That's amazing. So, yeah. so you do that stuff, and then the band kind of 
I don't want to say it falls apart, but I think mm-hmm. people start going different directions because mm-hmm. the, other, the other thing that's difficult too is that when you play with really talented people, mm-hmm. everybody else wants to play with those talented people too. You know well, I mean? no kidding. And that's what's happened with the, with, with, you know, and I can kind of maybe articulate this, the, the current situation with the novelists. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it very clearly, but you're right in general, that does happen. And it's, it always happens. And, and unless you've really broken through in a major sort of way, and even then there's going to be a bigger pull, because I mean, if you're, I mean, I'm trying to think of like a kind of a, a very successful band, but not the very, very top. I mean, if it's like, you know, Eric Hutchinson, for example, does really well tours or, or, you know, let's say Glenn Phillips has his own solo band and he has this band put together, you know, he's doing that. And then all of a sudden John Mayer calls and wants his bass player. I mean, there's obviously going to be some ethics involved, but like ultimately if John Mayer is playing the Grammys and uh, you know, um, somebody else is playing a, a 800 person. I mean, the point is that that, that conflict never really truly stops and there's also obviously there's a place where ethics and respect really matter i mean i'm not saying that it's there are certain situations where it's just totally shitty and inappropriate to bail on a gig but there's also certain situations as an artist where you have to be graceful and understanding of how hard this business is yeah you have to give people the room to do what they want to do and i i mean i know like you know with zach and miguel as the novelist was, which, which is on an indefinite hiatus, by the way, we never really made any announcement about that for a number of reasons. Um, I, I, you know, I don't like the term broken up anyway, because it doesn't feel that way. And the truth is we'll probably do a reunion show reunion tour. Maybe we'll even do a, a, another recording someday. I mean, I don't really know. And Joel and I will continue to work. We play dual gigs. So it just felt like overly dramatic and premature to say that we had broken up, which is why right. we never did. But we're doing different things. But at that time, Zach and Miguel were getting um, were getting some really big gigs with a band called Ila Bamba. I mean, they were getting they were offered uh, slots in the band, and they were doing things like the NPR Tiny Desk concert, and they were getting into major festivals and like Latin I Grammys felt, too, right? What's that? Latin Grammys too, right? Well. Latin Grammys as well. I actually, I actually uh, performed at the Latin Grammys. Um, (laughs) Miguel helped me, helped me get that gig in 2017, but that's a, that's a, that's a different thing uh, entirely. But, but the Ila Bamba thing didn't have really anything to do with that. Um, Basically the reason I'm even telling this story is because we knew that the novelist was not in a very healthy emotional place and, something need to give needed to give. And at that point, these guys were getting um, very fulfilling, successful opportunities. And I felt like it was just totally ridiculous to try to force them to be um, um, loyal. Isn't the right word, but I, all I'm saying is that I, I was very gracious and supportive of them taking that opportunity. And I don't say it's to, to, to make me look, you know, um, to, to, to make me present as this um, super awesome, compassionate guy per se. It's just more that's like, I understand how the business works and uh, I actually care about these people too. Yes. And uh, it's not like we were playing the same level of gigs. It's not like we had a tiny desk concert the same day that they did. You know, we weren't, yeah. our thing was definitely winding down. And so, um, you know, I was supportive of that, but anyway, to talk about like kind of where things are at now, it's like, yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of different musicians over the years and it's always a tough thing because there are many in a town of our size or 
fantastic musicians. Um, there are a lot of different people to work with and there's, it's always a consideration of what's going on stylistically and who, you know, who's available to tour and what's the vibe within the band. And yep. there's endless considerations, which you understand because you've been in bands forever too. It's, it's, it's not as simple as one might think, but like even now, you know, yeah. Working with uh, Miguel and Zach again, but working with Lucas Arizu primarily and working with, uh, you know, Chris Sexton, um, it's a it's a tricky thing, man, because, well, now it's tricky for everybody because if your gigs aren't getting canceled for COVID, they're getting canceled for smoke. So nobody knows right. how to plan for the future. But so true. yeah, it's 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 complicated when really good people and solid players are getting all kinds of opportunities because when it comes to the gig itself, it is unfortunately zero sum because there's only so many Saturdays. Right. Yeah. Right. So right. You either can do the gig or you can't do the gig. And then it's like, well, how do you build a project when you don't really know? And I'm, I'm just thinking out loud and maybe people will, will, will be able to relate to this or hadn't thought about this. I, I don't have any grand answer to it. I mean, ultimately it's, it's very difficult. It's something that needs to just be managed. And if you, obviously, if you break through in a major sort of way, it's pretty clear, like what the gig is. I mean, obviously if, me or somebody else is is on a major well-funded well-publicized national tour like that's probably going to be the gig that people are going to gravitate towards but i would never take it personally if i'm slugging away and say tim snyder or somebody else is like providing a better opportunity i'm not going to be like oh you're hurting my feelings i'm actually going to go no miguel like you you should take this and as your friend primarily first i would encourage you to do that i think that's great the way that you put that and and i have the same feelings about that too i think sometimes our egos get in the way Mm -hmm. or sometimes you know we do get our feelings hurt or things like Mm -hmm. that but it's like in the scope of things making music with people you care about i think Mm -hmm. only makes the music better and when those people have an opportunity you know that's huge Mm -hmm. like you got to let them take let it. them go you know what i mean yeah. like really Absolutely. because yeah. there's always going to be somebody that wants to work with you if you're talented yeah. i truly totally. believe that and there's always yeah. going to be somebody you click with yeah. you know and it's it, the whole goal i think personally is to let that person be creative and follow their dreams right you know what i mean and if it's with yep. you or with not or if it's not with you as long as they're still following their dreams and and, yeah. and doing what they're wanting to do musically that's the thing that matters the most and you yeah. you you kind of like I know the best way to say it is is you cherish your time with them. Like when I played with yeah. you, yeah. I mean, I got to play with you, Jason Thomas, yeah. Yeah. Zach, and Joel. Not exactly a terrible band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, good yeah. lord! I mean, that yeah. was and in a, in a in a weird bad time in my life where my yeah. kid was diagnosed with autism and I didn't know what was yeah. going on with him. Yeah. It was a really nice release to be able to do that. And I always cherish those memories of yeah. those like year and a half, two years we Me played too. together. And, th- and thank you. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's cool because when I got to play with you again, when you asked me to sit in with you when we did that show, um, the Heartbeat show for Heart yeah. for Our Town, and you know came over and did the rehearsal, it was just nice to yeah. see like Zach again, you know, and yeah. you know and whatnot. But it was really cool to see Lucas and be like, yeah, yeah this dude's perfect for his band. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just right to on, know yeah. like like this yeah. guy is just he's perfect, yeah. man. It's just yeah. it's a great fit. So. Yeah. I think it's the evolving, you know what I mean, which, yeah. is, which is super important. So yep. let's talk pandemic for a second, not yes. that we probably yep. don't really want to, but I think the big thing about my show is mm-hmm. just educating. And especially if we have younger listeners, it's, it's mm-hmm. I think they'll pull a lot of great knowledge from this show. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how'd you navigate through it? I mean, we're still in it, but obviously it's been a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of us musicians took a big hit for a while, and now unfortunately it's starting to look like it might go back to can, you know concerts being canceled again and things mm-hmm. like that. So, mm-hmm. how did you personally navigate through it? Yeah, well, there was there was um, obviously tremendous downside. There was actually tremendous upside, which uh, you know sometimes I almost feel kind of guilty acknowledging considering how absolutely horrible it was for a lot of people. Um, I mean, the downside certainly was, um, was uh, uh, socially like, like everybody. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's very difficult for humans to stay away from each other because that's just not how we've evolved. That's not what we're designed to do. Correct. Um, And uh, certainly in certain situations, it's, it's the prudent decision. So I'm not saying it was the wrong call. I'm just saying it sucks. It's hard. It's hard, right? So, so that was hard. Um, I had actually just basically gone through kind of the end of the novelist, at least as a main thing, and the end of a seven-year personal relationship right at the end of 2019, before anybody had ever heard of uh, coronavirus, or certainly before I had. Right, so, right. So it was already going to be this, this moment of like massive transition. Uh, I moved in with my parents, just had my own little space, was meditating, was uh, just trying to figure out who I am in as my, as my own being without having these other tethers, which were beautiful people that I still remain exceptionally close with, but it just, your life is very, very different when you have a full-time best friend and business partner and artistic collaborator. And when you have a primary partner and then three months later, you have neither of those things. I mean, it's it's massive paradigm shift and that's pre-pandemic. And then as we you know, once the pandemic hit, um, I guess the advantage to me though, was the fact that I did not have to feel guilt about not hustling the gig. And I had time to actually write and create and reflect. And that was kind of a gift. I mean, I wrote a whole bunch of songs. I actually started a lot of songs and I'm working on still now, because obviously once you get back in the, in the hustle of gigging, you know, the writing and recording can, can kind of take a back seat. Um, but actually it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful time. And it actually, my parents are in their seventies now. So I had an opportunity to like move in with them in a way that, you know, they lived thousands of miles away uh, for, for most of my adult life, um, which was actually pretty tough. And they moved to Reno recently and I never would have thought I would have moved in with them for, you know, what ended up being six months because of the pandemic, but I thought it would be three months just to get my brain together after the separations Um, but that was a gift too, man. It was actually a gift to like, we have a great rapport and, you know, obviously you don't want to be in your thirties and living with your parents forever, but it was, (laughs) it was a, it was a beautiful thing for, for the amount of time it was. Um, and then when things really got like, oh shit, we're, we're totally locked down. It's also another thing was great to, cause then I had been, I had been alone. Otherwise I would have been actually alone. And I know a lot of people that were alone during the pandemic and that for a lot of people was just absolutely brutal. And I was at yeah. least with my, with my parents and for the, for the second half, my brother as well. So it was actually really interesting. We had like this, like adult family, like living together again, like it was the 1990s, which was um, mostly a very good thing, mostly yeah. a very good thing. And, um, and for a short period of time, obviously. Right. And uh, I was writing a lot. And then um, Art Town, uh, City Arena, you know, mayor and, and uh, the, um, the Reno Philharmonic approached me about um, participating in the city song project. And they wrote me this email, you know, basically we've been challenged. The, the, the mayor has been challenged to 
put together a song in conjunction with this National City Song Initiative. And we're wondering, we'd like to ask you to produce it. We want you to use a wide range of artists around town. And we're going to basically, the idea, the framework is very loose, but we want you to produce this citywide project that basically builds goodwill. And um, I was like, when I got the email, I was initially like, just incredibly honored. Sure. Uh, but I was also like, oh shit, like how? I think I can do this. Yeah, I think I can do this, but I've never done anything at this scale. And I'm not completely sure I can do this. And I'm also thinking, okay, goodwill in the pandemic. Like, and this was actually actually a couple of days after I agreed to do it, um, uh, was the killing of George Floyd and then how that all kind of went to the front of the news cycle. Yeah. And you know, the song and the project certainly were never designed or even ultimately focused on on that. But that was just sort of a catalyst for um, major, major civil social unrest and um, further political polarization. And here I was committing to this project where I'm supposed to, you know, the directive, one of the few directives is basically use a wide range of, of characters from Reno. We want this to be Reno's song. Um, and then after I had already agreed to it, I'm going, oh my gosh, now the, the burden got much heavier. Uh, yep. It got a, uh, got a lot less in the, in, the, in the realm of being concerned about it being cheesy. But now I'm going, oh my gosh, like um, people are going to be hypercritical of this from all perspectives. Sure. And, the, you know, and like during a I'm pandemic. Going, there are landmines land, land, land everywhere. Exactly. During the pandemics too. So all of the recording was done. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Remotely or, or, you know, it would be one-on-one -on -one recording with masks and all this stuff. Yep. It wasn't like, like when we did it at our, at our town, we actually, that was the first time the song was performed live and it was never even rehearsed live with everybody. I know. You know? I know. And, that was crazy. Um, and everybody came together. Which was dude, amazing. It, 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 uh, that was that was truly one of the most gratifying nights of my life to see that come together um, in a way that I hope doesn't doesn't come off as selfish either. Because no, not was, at all. I, I was so happy to see that happen, but I was also incredibly moved to receive messages like the one you sent me afterwards, and and I got a lot of such messages where people were clearly um, just so excited to have been part of something that actually truly built goodwill and the thing with something like that is it's always there's always a risk that it's going to come off as cheesy or sort of forced right and i think we were able to miraculously um avoid those pitfalls everybody and it's a pretty tight community but there's a lot there's a there's also a lot of little mini dramas and there's tensions and you know there's um i would say in general sort of some social political consensus, but not even completely. I mean, if you really go through everybody that was on that stage and participated in the music video, I needed to manage a number of different um, personalities, political, yeah. well, social and political dispositions in a way yeah. that had to be done, dif you know, very um, uh, um, diplomatic, very particularly <laughs> diplomatically, <laughs> diplomatically and, and, and specifically. I mean, there are certain things that, and that's why what I, anytime we're writing lyrics or anything for that song, I tried to return to, Okay, what is the goal here? And uh, the goal, as far as I could tell, it's not to say there aren't, there isn't room for much more. Um, I, I don't I definitely don't want to use the word divisive, but like scolding and um, um, I don't know, actionable music. I think uh, some of that stuff is is some of my favorite music of all time. But I did not actually feel like that's what Heartbeat was supposed to be anyway. I right. felt like Heartbeat was supposed to be 
this is where we're going to find the overlap of the Venn diagram. And it's all about love and it's about connection and it's about empathy. And more specifically than that, we're not going to get into it because I know you have your opinions and you have your opinions and everyone has their opinions too. But like we can meet somewhere. I don't even want to say meet in the middle. We can just meet, we can meet somewhere that has nothing to do with, with politics um, while still having to do with politics, which is the interesting paradox there. I mean, it's like, on some level, everything is political uh, in the sense of, um, you know, people will sometimes say, well, I don't, I don't have any political opinions. I'm like, well, yes, you do. You care where your kids go to school. Yep. You care what your city looks like. You yep. care who you're allowed to marry. You care whether or not we're involved in this war or that war. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. I'm like, yeah, all that stuff's political. What you don't like is you have a very hard time relating to old men in suits. You don't understand what that's all about. And I'm right there with you. That's kind of a weird thing, but everybody is political in some sense, because if you care about anything in the world, there are political implications. But anyway, that's the heartbeat thing. This again, we, we go on, there's so many directions to go here, but it, ultimately that was all of last summer it was producing those 15 hour days, working with Brian Evans and Tom Gordon and, and all of you guys, well, let's talk. Um, let's talk a little bit about that, because because for the people that don't know about the song and whatnot, mm-hmm. I want to touch on a couple points that I think are interesting and a couple questions I have. Mm-hmm. So when you got together, obviously we know how it came together, and then you ended up co-writing it with mm-hmm. was it six people you co-write? Who'd you co-write it with? I think it's even, I think it's even more. It's, uh, let me hope I get everybody's names here, but you know Tyler Stafford, Kate Cotter. Dave Barry, Sean Richardson obviously wrote the rap. Tristan Selzler and Jeff DePoli contributed significant musical arrangements. Zach Turan wrote wrote all the chords and the progression and melodies of the bridge. Um, uh, Kalila Smith Cage contributed to lyrics. Uh, I'm just getting nervous here to wonder if I forgot anybody. For any of the listeners, if you uh, hopefully you'll check it out on Cliff YouTube. Porter too, right? Cliff Porter, uh, no, um, uh, not as a writer. No, okay. Okay. No, no. He was a lead Dave Barry. That's right. Dave Barry. Yeah, absolutely. Was um was was uh, one of the primary writers. In fact, um, I think that's it. I think that's it on writers. Um, and, which was also yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, so and you have a bunch you? of co-writers, which <laughs> yeah. which is kind of interesting to have a bunch of co-writers, yeah. right? I mean, it's always it's always tricky in that sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because people have just like political ideas. People have different mm-hmm. ideas. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, musically, right? Mm-hmm. And then tell the listeners how many people actually played on the song. So it ended up being 53 participants one way or another in the video. So okay. um, there were a couple of those. So it was probably 48 or 49 musicians because there's a couple like Cooper Bate and Michelle McCauley who were were doing dance um, portions of the video. Obviously, they weren't playing musical parts. But, right. um, but uh, I mean, yeah, an unbelievable amount of musicians. And all... Um, individually multi-tracked for the most part. We did do a, a, a three, a live um, a string trio, which were, you know, eight feet apart with masks and, and right. uh, you know, um, but uh, I think everything else was done um, pretty much just individual people. And a lot of it was done. People would come in. I would write a schedule and people would come into Tom's studio. A lot of times people would fly in their parts. You know, I know you came to Tom's studio. It just yeah. kind of depended on what availability was and if people had home recording studios and how comfortable they were coming in and stuff like that. Another question I have for you is yeah. how did you come up with like 
the list of musicians? Was there like a, a beginning list you started working with and you started going, oh, I want this person on or that person on? Or when did you say to yourself, I got way too many people on this? Or I was always curious. Uh, every half an hour, in fact, I said I had way too many people on. Every half an hour for six months, yeah. Um, yeah, so a little funny story here too is that as the project started, um, I had a conference call with, uh, with Tim Young, uh, from the Phil, Beth McMillan from our town and Alexis Hill and Megan Burner from the city. And they were talking about kind of, you know, we had an email communication already, but this was the first meeting that was kind of verbally going over. This is the framework and St. Louis had already made one of these. So there was something to model. Um, and they said, you know, you know, basically they gave me 100% uh, creative control. They just said, we want to make sure that this is representative of Reno as a whole, as much as possible. Sure. And they said, we'd like you to use eight to 20 musicians. And I'm going, okay, well, first of all, eight musicians, there's literally no way that could even, even attempt to have a facade of representing all of Reno because the, the, there's no way there's so many musical stylings and things. There's no way. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, we want to try 20, 20 would be closer to that, but even still, like, I mean, it's just, they're just necessarily entire genres will be left out if we're doing right. that. And, and they still were, frankly. Um, so we ended up, but anyway, so this is eight to 20 musicians and these were just in my mind. I hadn't even necessarily expressed these views. And then, you know, Beth and Tim and Alexis and, and, and Megan all, so, so you can use whoever you want, but like, we'll just, we're just going to give you some names that crossed our minds. You might consider working with. And of course there were a lot, most of these people I knew, but some I didn't, and, you know, they each read like 20 names or something like that. So here we're dealing with like well over a hundred names of like, you know, we'd like you to consider you and just like, and by the way, it's completely your choice who you want to use. Like yeah. so I'm going, between you 120 names <laughs> and I need to get this down to 20. Yeah. And a lot of these people were like absolutely um, critical presence presences in the Reno music scene. And I, again, then I'm even just, when I actually kind of followed up, I said, guys, I'm going to need more money to do this. Um, and I'm going to need more time and I'm going to need to use more people because there is just no way to, again, make this even present as community wide using 20 musicians. And even with the names, everybody listed, like, how do we, you know, how, I mean, how do you, how do you do a project like this and, and, uh, and necessarily not include some of these people. So the good news is a lot of these people were singers. And so that made it easier for their contribution to be in the choral section. Cause that was kind of the idea. Um, but even still, man, my, one of my regrets uh, on the project, probably my only real regret on the project is that it was just such a whirlwind. And even after it was done, like literally released, I went, Oh my goodness. I did not ask names. I'm not going to say now too. Sure. Now, but like, Oh my God, how am I ever going to look them in the face next time I see them? Like people that were even friends, I mean, obviously I'm not close friends at this point in my life, but people that I had relationships before that I just completely spaced and uh, uh, for no reason other than it was just a massive endeavor and you can write all these lists, but you just, you just forget people and it needed to be done in a month. We did it in two months, you know, yeah, which was I mean, still 15 hour days. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's one of the things I wanted to talk to, you know, have you talked to the listeners about right. because when you hear stuff like this, I don't think most average like music listeners, not musicians, understand like how huge of a project that is to manage. You know what I mean? And and how because because there were things I wondered about was like how 
how is he picking all these people? Because I remember when you sent me the message, I didn't even reply back to you. Do you remember that? I don't. It was such a whirlwind. Whirlwind. Well, I'll tell you a funny story real quick. I didn't reply back to you because I thought you were looking for singers. I was like, why the fuck is he sending me an email oh, about singing? Oh, and then you oh. were like, no, dude, I want you to play guitar on it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could totally do that. But that's why I was confused and whatnot. Well, I was and originally I was, hoping you'd, you'd, you'd handle lead vocals. But yeah, oh, guitar. Oh, it would have been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's definitely, uh, it, it was definitely something that I, 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 not many people could have done what you did, in my Thank opinion. You, you know what Thank I mean? You. It's, it's one you. of those things that, you know, and, it, and it's hard, too. And I'm glad you explained a lot of that stuff because people don't, I mean, because you ended up, essentially gathering the musicians and then you had to use probably some of those musicians like were because there was people you didn't know that were on some of those lists and then you're trying to totally. think how do i figure out how to get some of these people on yeah. here that i don't yeah. know yeah. many people in fact i didn't know recommended most i had most i had heard of but many that i didn't know didn't personally. know right and then yeah. you're arranging it i'm assuming you're producing it mm -hmm. you're co-writing it mm -hmm. and then whose name is the name that's going to be like on the dotted line is essentially yours when it comes to it being a success or a failure or any of those things. And obviously it wasn't a failure and being, and being criticized, which is also exactly. something I was terribly concerned about, you know? Well, right. Because here's the thing. A lot of people don't understand what you put into it, mm -hmm. you know, and if people understood what you put into it, which they do now, which is why I love having this platform, people can understand like, wow, I mean, he really had 53 people together to do this all during different parts, all during a pandemic where everybody had to be basically one-on-one. -on -one. Like I remember coming in the studio and Tom being like, you have to wear a mask on this and you have to do this and that. And, that. and I'm like, I'm so pro mask. I'm like, dude, mm -hmm. don't worry about it. It's totally cool. You know? Yeah. And like doing this part, doing that part. Then you shoot the video mm -hmm. and you're shooting the video during the pandemic. So you're trying to get everything organized where everything is socially distanced safe. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. dude, I mean, it's a pretty insane project yeah. when you think about it. You know what I mean? Well, there was obviously the artistic and musical component. And then there was actually the project management logistics component to it, which um, was something I think I, I probably, I do have some experience with like, you know, kind of say necessarily managing the novelist because Joel and I kind of co-managed it, but I handled a lot of this type of thing, but even yeah. still, it just, it was not, not even close. Like, I mean, it, 50 people, I mean, a lot of things I was even learning and man, I learned a lot from this, but it's like just scheduling, just, yeah. just scheduling alone could have been something that somebody could have had as a full-time job for a month, yeah. you know? And, and the other thing you realize is, okay, well, you're working with, you're not working with robots, you're working with people. And you're also working with musicians, which was even more like, oh my goodness, like as I admit being one of these myself, we're, we're not necessarily, we're a little bit different for the hurt, most part and different hurt, in different hurt, ways. Hurting so you're cats. trying to manage these person that hurt, it's hurting cats. People are always <laughs> late, you know. Um, and then but we all understand that though, right? Like, right. Because we're musicians, we understand how we are. You know what I mean? Like, right. No, but yeah, nobody's claiming that like we're not like that. It just, right. My point is more that it needed to be managed somehow because ultimately this thing needed to get to the finish line. Yeah. And, um, and, and the other thing is, while um, thankfully it, it was funded um, and by some some really generous donations by uh, Chris and Parky May uh, and also the city of Reno uh, through National Endowment for the Arts and, and various um, funding mechanisms, it, it's still. Um, you know, it was fairly funded, but the, but the truth is most people were doing this um, for, for less than what they would just in a market price kind of way. Sure. You know, certainly Tom Gordon and Brian Evans. I mean, those guys logged just ridiculous hours and it was always a little tough, you know, because somebody had to crack the whip on this thing and that was me. And yet right. these guys are like 
some of my best friends and artistic collaborators. And that's sometimes uncomfortable. He's like, I know you're tired. I know you, I know you're doing this and then you're doing that. This is what I'm dealing with. Can I ask you for a little more? Can I ask you to stay an hour longer? Yeah. You know, and uh, the good news is generally speaking, the answer was yes, because everybody was so into it. And I know yeah. that Brian and Tom, you know, were just as excited about this thing as I was, which is great because if I didn't have their buy-in emotionally, it, it wouldn't matter, you know, it's great you know, point. because those guys were working on, I mean, they would have made five, five to 10 times what they got paid if it was just a market price per hour, you know? Um, so it was a labor of love. And, and you're totally right. It goes back to that whole labor of love thing and talked about what we did. We talked about earlier in the conversation was, you know, finding where you are as an artist and what you want to do, which is super mm -hmm. important. Um, mm -hmm. I want to talk about subject matter of songs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to talk about being open in your songs and mm -hmm. is it difficult to do? Is it easy to do? Yeah. Do you write from your perspective? Do you write from other people's perspective? Do you do both? Mm -hmm. Well, at this stage of the game, it's, uh, it's all of the above. I mean, I think my songwriting started, which I think is often the case um, when you're dealing with anybody who's just younger has less life experience and is, is probably more inclined to be I don't know if selfishly focused is the word, but as you're younger, it's harder to really understand more about the world because you're it's you're in school and you're this and, and it's and it's you don't have as broad of a perspective. So my song certainly started that way, and almost all of the initial ones were fairly autobiographical, whether or not I was admitting that at the time, or even if they they might not have been in the first person, that's really what they were. And then as I've developed as a songwriter there's still that component, but there's also a component of like more sort of observations from the world. Um, and another thing that I think is really interesting, like, and I heard this in a Jason Isbell uh, interview the other day, and I totally relate to it is it's, sometimes it's frustrating because people assume that anytime you are in the, per, in the first person that it is autobiographical. Sometimes it's not, sometimes right. it actually is a story, you know? Um, so, so, so that's kind of shifted, but I will say that especially earlier on, anything that was deeply personal was usually um, disguised a bit um, because a lot of the things that were deeply personal, I was not willing to, to speak about. And now I've become, as far as I can tell, almost completely willing to speak about it. Um, and I wonder if there's even ever a downside to that. I, I'm inclined to think there isn't because I think we live in a world where people are so obsessed with presenting in a way that's so perfect that they assume that everybody else is like it and they're not. And I think that's just contributing to a, to an epidemic of mental health disorder and uh, social media just compounds that. And so, you know, I try to be pretty real about stuff. And I think that, you know, as a songwriter, the messages of love and optimism and hope and just plain old stupid fun are very much worth telling. But I think it's equally important to tell the stories about sadness and depression and longing and anxiety and, um, you know, lack of confidence and shame. Yeah. And it's not because I think we want to manifest more of that or live in that world, but I think it gives people something to hold on to in those moments. And it, it, it makes them feel less isolated. And as a songwriter, it sort of selfishly gives you the ability to work through the emotion because a lot of times I'll write the song and I'll notice when the song is done and often when the whole production and the recording is done, 
I feel like, okay, there's my little diary on that. It's entirely public, but like I actually moved through that and I don't actually feel that way anymore. I still try to embody the character when I'm performing it, but I don't feel the way that I did when I wrote it because I wrote the song and I moved through it. It's cathartic. And the thing that's, I think, huge about that too is you make a difference with people when you're a musician, I believe. And I believe, Mm -hmm. you know, there's ways that artists speak to you. You know, mm-hmm. and and what the artist could be singing about could be totally like a perfect example. Allison Chains' "Dirt," the song Lane Staley's talking about is heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. Every time I hear that song, I think about a really bad relationship I was in mm. because the lyrics of that song can be translated to that relationship for me. You know, totally. I mean? It doesn't. Same it doesn't have to period. mean exactly what it meant for him. Absolutely, and <laughs> yeah. and I think that's the beautiful thing. It's like you know, the police. Every breath you take, it's about mm-hmm. a stalker. You know, and, and at one point it was the number one wedding song, which I think is absolutely hysterical. You know what I mean? When you think that about it. That is absolutely hysterical. Yeah. And, and, then, and entirely cool still. Yeah, exactly. So here's my big question to you. Yeah. What was the... I don't, I don't do big questions. It's got to okay. be medium. No larger than medium. Okay. So no supersized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, this is good. Happy meal question. Yeah. Um, so what was the most personal thing you wrote about? Well... You know, I think at this point, um, obviously, all, the best way I can answer that question is to say up until this moment, because, you know, who, who knows how, how, how that will evolve over time. But sure. Probably the most, I'm really trying to, trying to put my, put my uh, finger on this the best I can. And the, the most personal um, subject has certainly been my, my acceptance and um, my acceptance of my, my sexuality, for sure. Um, uh, and that's, that's appeared in a number of different songs. Um, you know, I think that, uh, for example, above the hiding, which was like, you know, it was a number of things. That song is a perfect example of something that for me was very much about my struggle with embracing my sexuality. But if you watch the novelist music video, which you can find above the hiding online, you can see that it actually had significance to, Joel and Zach and other people in other ways that, that, you know, they're, they're straight, but they have other, other issues about like not necessarily fitting into something and feeling, feeling the pressure of society to conform. And so I, what I, what I love about that song for other people is like, you can certainly enjoy this regardless of what your sexuality or race or any of that is, because you, you pretty much anybody that's paying attention, that's been on this planet for more than 15 years or 10 years, in fact, must have some sense of what it's like to feel a certain societal pressure that they just wish wasn't there and they wish they could overcome. So, I mean, that's that, I mean, honestly, with that song, man, I also wrote that into that. Well, I wrote it you know, musically. There were contributions from Zach and, and Joel, but I wrote the lyrics uh, other than by the way, the word hiding couldn't find that word. The whole song was done and Joel contributed that, which is only one word, but it's huge. really quite a huge word. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is that, it's not a surprise that he contributed that because he's still one of the, one of the two or three people who knows me best in the whole world. But at that point we were like completely inseparable by necessity. So it's not a coincidence that he was able to find the word because he knew what I was going through from a different perspective, almost as well as I did myself, which was really interesting. And uh, he has some analogous experiences just with his experience, you know, leaving religion. He was raised, um, um, in an extremely strict um, Jehovah's Witness 
basically religious paradigm, which comes with all kinds of baggage that is obviously not exactly the same as, you know, coming out as gay, but it's very similar as far as the implications and the way that it kind of messes with you. Totally. But, um, but, but so that was above the hiding. But when I wrote the lyrics of that in 2013, I was not, not out at all. Like right. there were still a handful of my very closest friends that I was hanging out with where I was still so uncomfortable, um, uh, very uncomfortable uh, even telling them and they didn't, they didn't even know. Um, so this is what I'm saying about sort of disguising things. I was able to disguise it a little bit because if you listen to the song, knowing my situation, you can definitely connect the dots. And I was hoping that people would wonder, cause I was starting to get ready to like, I'm, I'm almost ready to talk about this, but it's not like a literal song. I mean, it doesn't say anything about right. homosexuality or anything like that. Um, which in a sense keeps it a little more broad and applicable to other people as well, because you can see, you know, I've grown tired of playing out this role and it's time we live the truth, something I can own. Most people can find a way to grasp onto that lyric, even if it has nothing to do with sexuality. And for most people, it won't. And I'm fine with that. I'm not only fine with that, I'm happy about that. Yeah, because it's the interpretation. It's what you get out of the song that's important. You know what I mean? Like what you get out personally as the writer is important, but what the listener gets out of it is important too. Like however they want, you know, if it's yeah. empowering, that's awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. However it is, yeah. you know? So talking about this and your sexuality, mm-hmm. I was always curious, yeah. how hard was it for you to come out of the closet? I don't even know if that's a term that mm-hmm. is even used anymore. How hard was that to do as a musician? Did you have mm-hmm. fear of maybe people not booking you or people mm-hmm. treating you differently? Um, what gave you the courage to finally be like, you know what, I'm, I'm okay with, you know, basically telling people who I really am. Like, right. Well, you know, um, initially it was a tremendous fear. And what I should say is, uh, much of the fear was totally, uh, illegitimate as well. It's not illegitimate as an emotion, but it was not, it was irrational actually. Um, because in the world of music, Man, I mean, yeah, certain people are gonna 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 write you off. Uh, I suppose still a very small amount, but for being gay, but like they're gonna write you off just because they don't like your music. And some people are gonna like you more because you are honest enough to tell your truth, right? So, I think it's if anything, frankly, even a net positive to just be vulnerable and say this is who I am. Um, and I probably knew that at the time, but it still was like, yeah, I mean, I knew certain people, and I kind of knew their political leanings, or they would say certain things, obviously, because no one suspected me in my company that were like, you know, not, um, not, not um, massively or egregiously homophobic, but mildly. So just sort of like, sure, you know, whatever you want to call locker room talk or whatever. And these were nice people too. I never took it personally. I just thought, oh man, this might be sort of weird. Um, and some of those situations were, I actually had people apologize to me after the fact, when they found out, they're like, I'm so embarrassed. I, I know around you, I had made some, you know, homophobic slurs and stuff. And I, I don't even feel that way. And I don't know why I said it. And like, I totally love you. And I'm so sorry. And my, my approach is like, cool, you're forgiven. I don't, I don't hold. Yeah. Me. I mean, it's one thing when someone is sincerely a bigot and needs to be right. transformed. It's also something that I think is, should be treated very differently when somebody just says some off color shit that they probably shouldn't say, especially if they sincerely apologize for it. Yeah, I mean, I think we live in a world where um, we're actually in some ways too critical of people when we, we, before we were on recording, we were talking about intention mattering. I think it does matter hugely. It's not the only thing that matters. Obviously, sometimes people can have intentions that are in the right place and be very destructive. But like, 
generally, look, man, things are complicated. People, somebody says something that they don't, they don't stand by. If they sincerely apologize, like let's, let's acknowledge that and let's get over it. I mean, for the most part, I mean, there are certain comments that can be um, maybe too egregious or deeply rooted in something that they're not really sorry about. But anyway, a tangent again, but I had people that would apologize and I would just like, look, man, or, or woman or whoever it was like, I'm not bothered by it at all. Your apology is totally sincere and we're totally tight. So forget about it. And that was the end of that. But I, I, I didn't actually great. come out. I didn't actually come out in any public way. I, what I did is over the years is I stopped concealing it. Right. And so more and more people knew. And then yeah. I'd post a picture with, you know, with my boyfriend or something like that. And then many more people knew. Um, but I, I didn't make an announcement until October 11th of last year, which is national coming out day where I actually wrote, uh, pretty lengthy blog post, which people, I remember that I'd encourage them to read if, if they, if they're interested, they can go to my website, which is Eric Henry Anderson, S E N.com. Um, you know, hopefully you'll put that in the show notes, but they can just, there's a tab that says blog and there's two blogs and, and they can read that if they're interested. But, um, at, at which point I did want to make an announcement because I wanted to just put a bow on it. I didn't want it to sound self-aggrandizing. Um, but I wanted to basically, um, be a role model for people that were going through what I was going through and just be like a couple things. One, this is not only okay. It's like, it's great. It's who you are yeah. Two, It actually gets better. I know that it hurts and it's weird and it just sort of, it can be totally shattering of your paradigm and what you think of yourself and you don't know how you fit into the world, but that is a valuable lesson to learn. And it's kind of a blessing just like your health scare was Yeah, because having to reckon with this over you know, really seven or eight or nine years of processing this to a point where I'm mostly okay. I would say I'm not even still totally there. What it's done is it's, it's been a blessing because it's forced me to, it's forced me to question literally everything right? In, in, about paradigms. And you just, you know, at a younger age, you make certain assumptions about how people are, how society is, how people should behave. And then you go through something like realizing that something that, you know, traditionally has been condemned as wrong and unnatural, um, you couldn't possibly be more sure is actually not wrong and is actually totally natural. And you're going, well, if they got this part wrong, what else do they have wrong? Yes. And what it does is it, I mean, I'm not saying it makes you a conspiracy theorist. It just makes you more interested in entertaining all possibilities rather than going, this is the way it is. And I think that has been a blessing. You know, I think you bring up great points, man. And I'll I'll add a little couple things to this. Yeah. Uh, I feel that way about the R word for me because mm -hmm. of my son. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, I'm a little bit older than you. Mm -hmm. And the R word and the F word, mm -hmm. you know, were dropped a lot. And mm -hmm. I don't think they were mm -hmm. dropped in it's It's almost like it became like just saying like, dog or cat and people not understanding like when you're saying these things you're equating it to negativity and i mm -hmm. think people understanding that concept mm -hmm. and then going oh wow like and i think it's not just about a, an apology it's more about mm -hmm. having the other person evolve and understand why it hurt that person's feelings because totally. you're always going to offend somebody i mean it, mm -hmm. it's just the way it is we're so different right you know, I I will bring up a person in my life that I've known almost my whole life. Mm -hmm. Actually, I've known my whole life. And I was on the phone with this person, mm -hmm. and this person was dropping R-bombs left and right. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, 
I just want to let you know, you've dropped that R-bomb three times in the last two minutes. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, you know, I don't mean it like that, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, here's the deal. Like, it's still not okay. Totally. For me personally, and totally. when you're around other people, like, it's not going to be okay with them either. And I, and yeah. I think that was that's the big thing for me is understanding, yeah. like, you know, just have an understanding because I know I've definitely dropped those words and I yeah. don't anymore. I, I say totally. ridi- I say ridiculous now instead yeah, of the, exactly. the R word, you know? Yeah. I made it a point for me to understand that. And I'll tell you another thing I thought was really cool. So I knew, you know, you were. Mm-hmm. And then I ran into you at a show that I was playing. Mm-hmm. And you introduced me to your boyfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was with my girlfriend. And I was mm-hmm. like, cool. And that was the first time you ever did that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, then you walked away, whatever. And I turned to my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I go, that was really fucking cool. I'm really proud of him. You oh, I mean? well, thank you. That you could that you could do that. That you felt comfortable. Yeah. You know what I mean? It took, a, it took a minute, man. Yeah. And to me, it was like the thing that was cool. You said earlier in your head. For me, it was like good for him. Like it was yeah. never a. It was. Ne- I never looked at you differently. You know what I mean? And I think right. there are people that do, which sucks. Mm-hmm. And that's with mm-hmm. anything, right? You know yeah. what I mean? But, but better, better find those people sooner than later. Anyway, absolutely. So you don't have to waste your time, man. Or, or it's a teachable moment. You know what I mean? That is so true. And I, again, you know, to, 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 to preserve some people's anonymity, but I had a, so I won't mention names, but I have a few situations just like that. I have some, um, you know, particularly, uh, well, there's a, there's a few moments here and I find that to be one of the best gifts of this whole situation imaginable, but there's some friends, some friends of mine, some parents of friends of mine, good friends that, uh, several pairs that, uh, or several, several sets of parents that, had grown quite fond of me and close to me, especially in my early years in Reno, because when I was out here, I didn't have my brother or my parents at that point. So I was right. kind of, I had a, a pretty rich social circle quickly, but I was kind of an orphan, you know? And, um, you know, I'd get invited to, you know, Christmas dinners and Thanksgivings and Easter's and all these things where people would have family gatherings and I had nobody to be with. And it was always really just so beautiful to me that I was included. And, um, you know, uh, a, a couple of these, these families were kind of more, I don't, I don't necessarily know if I would even say right leaning, but like, um, fairly, uh, they were certainly Christian and to what degree they were homophobic. I don't know exactly, but they sure. were mildly for sure, but they actually were really nice, kind people. And I don't hold it against them. I think it's a, it, it's a societal systemic, problem and it comes from being raised a certain way and adopting a certain worldview um but again um i just and and in those situations these were years before i told these people because i was worried but you know what it was a teachable moment you know why is because whatever sorts of um stereotypes they had created or or negative connotations they had with gay people um which are you know as most stereotypes are generally damaging and often not true right they i was able to break down that paradigm in their mind completely and when they found out they're like well this is not what i thought it would be and i clearly can't deny the fact that i totally love this person yeah. so maybe it's me who needs to update my opinion my worldview and it's not like they ever had this conversation with me i just saw it happening in real time and i was like oh fuck yeah like that's yeah. cool yeah. that's it- cool and people, and this is another thing that I think is important to mention, even just on a more social societal level is like, regardless of where you fall. And I, I, I get, I will get grief from a lot of people 
that are more in my political camp, which is generally most artists, um, you know, um, is probably no surprise. I mean, you, you know me, so this isn't a surprise, but you know, for listeners, I mean, I, I'm certainly generally speaking much more on the left side of the political spectrum, but where I think it's really a mistake is where people on either side who actually are good people who are serious about their convictions will condemn other people very quickly without, like we said earlier on in this conversation, trying to listen. Right. Cause you might not even find middle ground, but what you might find is even if I really don't agree with this person, I can see their humanity. And if I trace back their life all the way to the beginning, I understand why somebody who was raised in the South and a religious uh, 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 upbringing and community is going to have these views. I don't need to agree with them. I might even have the chance in a conversation of maybe we can make some headway. Maybe we can maybe even talk them out of some other bigoted views, but maybe my opinion can be open too. And I might realize that some of what they believe in isn't actually bad the way I thought it was. And maybe I never even thought about that. And basically what I'm saying is there's goodwill to be had. And when you come to these conversations, already hating the other person, being completely knowing that you're right and justified and thinking that they're terrible, like that, that just doesn't end well. And I'm not saying there's no ground truth. I'm not saying there isn't some higher ethic we can arrive at, but you know, I remember, um, um, Obama saying something and, uh, you know, I am unapologetically a huge Obama fan, which gets me obviously a lot of <laughs> grief from anyone on the right, but it also gets me a surprising amount of grief from people on the left who think that he was sort of a sellout. And I, I firmly disagree with that. Um, I think politics are very complicated, but it is a very complicated landscape, but, um, basically he said something that when I read his, uh, I was like 18 years old. I read his, um, um, with, uh, audacity of hope the audacity of hope which was a book he came out with before he even maybe right, right before he ran for president um okay. and basically um i remember him saying something to the effect of we all have a lot more in common if you start with that like we all want a roof over our heads we want opportunity for our kids we want health care whether it's uh you know um state-run health care or not we all want to be able to go to the doctor when we need to absolutely okay? we all want to be treated fairly we all want opportunity and like the truth is most people, not everybody, there are the extremes on the right who basically really don't want that for everybody that are incredibly selfish. And I think there are the extremes on the left who just want to burn everything down and cause problems, frankly. So there are extremes all over the place, but like 80 to 90% of like our neighborhoods want the same things generally, even if they think about the details differently. And I think if you start there, you can at least have a conversation that is um, uh, 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 predicated on goodwill. And you may find more agreement than you thought because you're approaching it from a position where you don't hate the other people. And even where you do disagree, you could still have a beer and a, and a barbecue with your neighbors because you're able to s just put that aside for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. They're great points, man, because I, I think about, you know, a lot of that stuff too. And, and I think social media has been the big eye opener. But I don't think social media is bad. I think it's how you use social media is bad. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you, I mean, I, I, I mean, I hate to say this, but I'm going to admit it. There's people I just kind of put on mute because mm -hmm. I just can't do it anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. For me, it's about having an open mind. And you know what else it is, is breaking the chains. You know, it, that's a huge thing. I mean, when I was younger and I was born in 74, mm -hmm. so uh, there was, a, there was a big height of, 
homophobia mm-hmm. and, uh, and really just uh, shitty things. Let's just be honest. And like bigotry in all forms. I'm oh sure. my god, yeah. And it's one of those things where you just, you know, it was around you, and mm-hmm. and you can break those chains if you're if you are open minded enough. And for me, what it was was, you know, learning like Freddie Mercury, you know, mm-hmm. or Rob Halford from Jesus Priest, and I'm going mm-hmm. like. I, Dude, those guys are amazing. Why would I? Or sports was huge for me. Mm-hmm. Like learning, you know, playing sports and just mm-hmm. you're with all different, you know, nationalities, all different, mm-hmm. you know, people of color and and everything. You know what I mean? And just realize yeah, when you're like, on the team with those people, you yeah. don't care if the guy's black or white or Hispanic. No, you don't care about you any just, of that you, stuff. No, you actually have this brotherhood that is so powerful. And, and and sports to me translated into music for me and a bunch of other stuff, life mm-hmm. lessons, you know, mm-hmm. the, the working together, all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think certain people, it's so ingrained in them that it's almost hard for them. I think questioning stuff is huge, like you talked about. And I also think, you know, being able to like walk into any conversation with an open mind, knowing that your whole purpose of this conversation is to walk away learning something. Mm-hmm. Not if you're right or wrong. Not right. if any of that stuff. It's about learning, learning something. something, evolving, evolving well, emotionally, yeah. and evolving in terms of uh, you know just being just being a better person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, well, Stephen Covey, uh, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. I think I read this years ago, but this has always stuck with me too. And his quote here is is something to the effect of, "I think it's seek to understand and then to be understood." Yeah. See, you know, in other words, you're entering a conversation. It's not your agenda should not be. I'm going to make that that guy know exactly what I think. And I'm going to I'm going to straighten him out. It's let's figure out where they're coming from first, primarily, really. Let's understand more. Let's which is basically what you're saying. Let's learn something. And then, of course, yes, let's 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 try to present information in a way that is that is not um, aggressive and that comes from goodwill. And maybe they'll understand me, too create rapport, but also initially seek to understand. I think passion got confused for hostility and anger. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I mm-hmm. think that that balance kind of went all wonky where mm-hmm. you can be passionate about something, mm-hmm. but then when you're taking the aggression and the anger and, and that, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's the term you always hear. If you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. No kidding, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and that could there. be, a, that could be applied to anything, you know? Yeah. Um, I so enjoyed our conversation today. Me too, man. I mean, it's it was wonderful. <laughs> it, it was really awesome. I mean, I'm excited. I'm really excited. And I hope everybody really took the time to listen to the whole conversation. This is your time to plug anything or add yeah. anything. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, hopefully you can mention this stuff in the, in the notes, but I mean, Eric Henry is my website and obviously social media rules the world. Please find me on all the socials. Um, got a mailing list on there. I got a lot of hopefully exciting things in the future. Um, my own podcast coming as well. And uh, a lot of new music I'm working on. And uh, let's see, I don't know when you'll, when you'll be putting this out, but um, hopefully some things coming up in the, in the late summer and fall as far as shows. But again, that'll all be on website and social. So yeah, man, just really appreciate this conversation as well. We should, uh, we should do it again off the record or on the record. So um, would love to, man. It. Love to be on yeah. your show when you get it up and going and whatnot. Okay. And feel free to yeah. always get a hold of me with if any advice you need for cool. podcasting. Not I'm the be all end all, but I've done about yeah. 100, 130 interviews now. So okay. I've done a couple. Um, 
Yeah, thanks again, man. I really, really okay. super enjoyed this. And then at the end of the show, we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have a song from Eric Henry Anderson yep. <laughs> because Holding that's space, a funny. Right? Well, yes, yes. And and here's a funny story. I want to just say this real quick. Yeah. Actually, I just want you to tell it real quick before we get yeah. out of here. Yeah. Why you throw your middle name in there? Yeah, well, there is a singer-songwriter who is, uh, what, five decades my senior, or four and a half decades my senior, by the name of Eric Anderson, E-R-I-C-A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N, exactly the same spelling as mine. And uh, it's been uh, kind of a disaster on iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Google, Facebook, all of this stuff, because our names are exactly the same. And had I kind of thought about this years ago, I would have initially... um, uh, well, I would have initially put this uh, into place, but I'm, that's why I'm using my middle name. Eric Henry Anderson differentiates. You know, I think it has kind of a um, uh, a nice ring and sort of a confusing sort of all-American sound too, because you have this these Norwegian bookends and then you have an English name in the middle and it's just sort of like, well, what the hell? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Did you ever get to talk to him? Uh, you know, I have not. I've had email exchanges with his um, with his manager who was not all that uh, cooperative, frankly. Um, oh, that's a drag. But uh, that's fine. They can have their name. I got Henry anyway, so. One other question for you, too, real quick. Um, did you end up getting a lot of listeners because of that? And 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 how weird was that? What, I'm assuming as the gambit of like, wow, you're not who I thought you were, but you're really cool, or like, you're not him. Why are you trying to be him? Or there's a little mean? bit of both. There's a little bit of both. I remember, you know, especially years ago when iTunes was kind of even more the the central spot for music consumption, and they you know list top songs and all this stuff it was really interesting because the top Eric Anderson songs would be like a mix of both of ours, which I thought was pretty cool that I yeah. was like even making it into the top ten at all. Absolutely. Um, but I also had you know some of these shows like. Um, Speaking of casino shows, I had a gig at, and casinos can be weird too, because sometimes they have, you know, the, the showrooms for like kind of large national acts. And there's the cabarets, which are, you know, generally cover band type stuff. But yeah, I had a show at the Silver Legacy years ago and the marketing department got the, uh, you know, obviously it was forwarded the info that it's Eric Anderson, but there was no distinction made. So they went and they mistakenly pulled his bio and so oh, they advertised no. the show oh, at the no. Silver Legacy Lounge. Oh no! As you know, Eric Anderson uh, first broke onto the scene in 1962 with the Beatniks and was working with Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell, and you know later uh, was playing festivals with Joan Baez and all this stuff. And oh, I actually had people come to my show expecting the other guy, and most of them were incredibly gracious. But some of them actually traveled, you know, I don't know, hundreds of miles from Sacramento. Wow expecting this other guy and but i actually got some fans out of it They're like well you're not him but like ah it's cool i like your music yeah 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 that's oh. crazy I, w- I always wondered that i never got to talk to you about that but i always yeah. thought that would be funny to think like it's almost like a silver lining thing right you know totally yeah you know and and that's the big thing about today's conversation man a lot of silver linings you know that we we Absolutely. don't uh we don't look for as much as we should. Another mm-hmm. thing that I definitely learned from last year, silver linings, man. Pandemic was the worst thing ever, but you know, there were silver linings from that. So Totally. And gratitude. Friend, as you said, gratitude is, uh, you, is you know, huge. We, we, we cannot be, that can't be lost on us at any point. There's no way to have a, a complete and a satisfying life if, if you can't be grateful for what you have. Absolutely. My friend, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I really appreciate it. And uh, yes, thank I'm, you, I know we'll definitely talk again soon for sure. 
What a great talk with Eric Henry Anderson on the show today. Really appreciated his time. He was gracious enough to give us one of his songs called Holding Space. We're going to play it for you right now. Make sure you take care of us, friends. We're a brand new podcast. Anything you can do for us with a five-star review, sharing us on the socials, and uh, maybe even giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Peace. From new highs to new lows Seven years down melt like snow Squaring with the truth you face Do you have what it takes to be free? You resolve a new way From relief your Struck with pain Finding once again you doubt Did you love him enough? Or are you just giving up? But you know, when you know But your heart won't let go When you know That the only way out is through When you know But your heart Oh